the mindfulness when you're warming up and you're buzzing a low C or whatever it is that you do for a warm up that's familiar to you that relaxes you. Uh, you'll you some days your brain's going to be racing about all these other thoughts and stuff you got to do, and uh, you're not in the here and now. You're in the there and then, and not focus on what where you're at so it's to clear that noise out and just be there with just the playing of the instrument whatever else is going on if if you're doing a gig it can wait this episode contains adult language and adult humor since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults if you are easily offended by these types of conversations consider switching to the oboe welcome to the trumpet guru zang podcast i'm your host jose johnson my guest for this episode is Mark Zaus. Mark is backed by popular demand for another hang. There are few people who can talk about the physical and mental demands of the modern trumpet player as authoritatively as Mark. His seemingly magical range and power made him a mainstay at Disney's Magic Kingdom with both Future Core and the Main Street Philharmonic. But when you combine his battle-tested chops with his skills as a licensed clinical psychotherapist, you get the ultimate resource for your trumpet-playing woes. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. All right, welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Goods Hang, and I have a return guest, yes, indeed, by popular demand. He's back, the one and only Mr. Mark Zaus. Mark, welcome, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. I, I had a great time last time. Glad to be back. So. Oh, man. I, I got so many great comments uh, about uh, your episode and, and the discussions that we had. And, uh, and it also, you know, I mean, it's great for me just to catch up with you because uh, we have we have a lot of a lot of stuff in common uh, in in terms of uh, the way we, we kind of approach life. So I think that's always good to, to have that, that foundation. So uh, let's... Uh, Let's just kind of dive into things, man. You know, it's, it's obviously it's been a it's been a crazy time since the last time we talked. You know, things of uh, between COVID uh, and then the um, resulting things that are, you know kind of happened because of that. And uh, so many so many musicians were out of work during uh, that period of time. And um, you know, I know that you you were you're doing the park gig for a while, and then you were you know like. You know, most of you, you had, you had kind of, you had already kind of phased yourself out of that for a while, right? With, to get your practice going, your, your clinical practice going. Uh, but um, how have you seen, uh, you know, the, the results of people having to kind of switch gears from being more in the gig, you know, gigging consistently to not gigging and now gigs are back up again. So, you know, the, the shifts that, ha that occur in ourselves, uh, both uh, emotionally mentally and, and obviously then physically uh, as we go from working to not working back to working again. That's a great topic to, to bring up because the, uh, the, there's been a pretty much a mental health tsunami. Uh, when you take somebody's uh, pattern of life, what they do each day, their, their routine and you change it around, it's really difficult on, on the brain and on the limbic system. It want, it, the, the brain loves routine. It loves the same thing over and over again, or it, it maybe not the same exact thing it loves excitement too but it it likes to know what to expect at least to know what's coming uh and especially for musicians they're used to going and doing gigs driving to the gig uh getting the gig calling it's their livelihood so then that gets taken away uh because they're not able to work it gets canceled or uh you you um there's no gatherings or they can't work well so it takes a toll on them 
And uh, there was a lot of talk wondering if it would come back, you know, because when it started out, the pandemic was only supposed to be two weeks. And then it turned into, well, here we are in year three coming up. We're almost on the, uh, about the anniversary of that. So yeah, it definitely took a toll on people. Did notice that uh, some people that went, went out and started working again had a real increase in anxiety. They're shaking, they're doing stuff they didn't ever think they would. Uh, almost like they were confused, had difficulty uh, functioning and even finding the gig their first day back, first week back, they're, they're having some, um, just some anxiety about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been back to work, thank goodness, uh, gigging and, you know, it, it was interesting at first, you know, kind of being on stage and, uh, doing mostly, you know, events and things like that. So, um, but what was really weird for me was just the other day I was at a concert and it was like the first concert I've been to in a long time. And, uh, you know, that now obviously the CDC has lifted uh, the, the mask mandates and, um, I'm in this like, almost, I don't, I would say a mosh pit. It wasn't a, it wasn't that kind of a concert, but it was, it was, you know, just a bunch of people standing by the front of the stage and, there were only hand people, a handful of people wearing masks, and uh, you know I had mine, and I just felt really kind of weird standing there without one for a while. And it's like I felt I feel a little security having the mask on actually. So, uh, it, but yeah, it's just it's real interesting to see how some people are still holding on to uh, the, the the caution. Some of it, some of it being very subconscious. It's just it's it's that fear and anxiety of it. And then other people are just like the hell with this man, and they're just you know they're just way back into the the old normal sort of thing. So um, yeah, I can I can see how how uh, from a performer's perspective that could be kind of a, lot, a little shaky too. So uh, it, with your practice, I mean, uh, you, you have that combination of dealing with uh, the, the general public, but then also people come to you for your expertise because they're musicians and, and they're, they're having some level of struggle, either as a, as a trumpet player or uh, in terms of the technical aspect, but also then the mental approach to things. Um, so have, have you really seen kind of an uptick of uh, problems that people are experiencing in terms of uh, how their anxieties are affecting their technical performance? Yes, I am. Uh, what I'm getting a lot is um, people are calling for a, a lesson and they're auditioning. Uh, there's a couple of things I'm getting and they're, uh, they're having horrible nerves. And I'm hearing this quite often where I didn't used to have nerves. I used to just go in these auditions. I loved them. I look forward to them. And now I'm shaking when I go in and they're really, uh, they're really getting to me, and there's there's ways to treat that. There's there's a uh, it's pre pre anticipatory anxiety, and uh, that also comes through in their playing. So uh, they start tensing up before they play the instrument, and um, you know you, it's hard to really do anything well when you're tense, whether it's martial arts, golf, or anything, any kind of sport. You know it's hard to do it when you're tense. So they almost have to relearn how how not to be tense again. It makes sense. They haven't done it in a long time and it, it's it kind of is uh new to them again so familiar new i guess yeah well i mean so so what are the some of the i mean obviously you know this is uh just this is advice this is not uh you know by any means uh a, a clinical session but uh you know what, what are some of the standard 
kind of protocols that people might be able to to look at to help to ease those levels of anxiety and and to uh, to get themselves a little more calm down, uh, deregulate the, that amygdala, and uh, you know get themselves back on track again. Well, good question. So I'll, there's a I'll give a couple of examples of some things you can do to help calm down the limbic system or the fight or flight glands. So the the if we go back to uh, the, uh, the person who proceeded Freud, which would be uh, Margaret Mahler, she had an object relations theory that was pretty interesting, and, and she's obviously brilliant to come up with this. So we relate, uh, our brain assimilates situations uh, to, to other situations that we've seen. So if we previously, uh, let's say we go back a couple thousand years, and we went to a place where we found food. Uh, we we would recognize the cues around the place where we found food before. It could be trees and bushes near a lake, and we found fish in the lake. In other words, so we, our brain would object would relate the objects around the lake to food, right? And we'd start to have a reaction, or we might salivate, we might uh, become uh, feel that we're hungry, get excited because we know we're going to eat soon. Uh, if that makes sense. So it, it all comes back to playing trumpet too. So if we were um, tense and we were driving to a gig and we're thinking about what the other musicians might think or or, or what the audience might think we might grow uh, some anxiety about that so we these external cues or these objects that we would relate to would cause us to be tense and uh, it's it's recognizing those where's this anxiety where's this tenseness coming from and so part of it is awareness you you are aware that you're feeling anxious the, the key to the beginning of treating any sort of anxiety is being aware of it. And as soon as you are aware of it, the cognitive behavioral approach would be to acknowledge it. Okay, I'm nervous about something, can't quite put my finger on it. Maybe it's because I'm on my way to a gig, I've done it well. Then you take a huge breath. So if you're listening uh, to, obviously you're listening to this if you're watching this, but if you would try this little experiment, let's say you take a huge breath and you release the air and then see what kind of thoughts come in your head right after you release the air. So you go, <sighs> so I don't know about you, but, but for the first four seconds or so, I think absolutely nothing. I can't, there's no thoughts in my head. That's because the oxygen dilutes the neurotransmitters in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, the front part of the brain where, um, you know, our executive decision-making center is from. Uh, is 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 being taken is taking place. You know where we make decisions, thoughts, and um, how we process our surroundings. Uh, that in turn calms down once we take a big breath like that and clear that out. Uh, it would send a message to the limbic system or our fight or flight glands, specifically the amygdala uh, gland, which is the fight or flight gland. That everything's okay here. Everything's good. We have plenty of oxygen. No re no reason to worry. Uh, and it starts to calm down the limbic system. And you notice that. After you do that, after we do a breathing exercise, uh, let's say like a box breathing exercise, which I'll show you in a minute, my uh, speech will slow down, it'll be less spastic, and and uh, the, the uh, fight or flight glands will calm down as well. <clears throat> so the, the after you do the big breath like that, let's say you're on your way to an audition, you're sitting backstage, you're sitting outside of the audition room ready to go in, or you're, you're about ready to perform, or any anxiety-provoking situations you might have. Uh, you would take a, that huge breath, release the air, then breathe in through the nose for seven seconds. So this would be seven, seven second, seven, seven, seven is the, is the um, exercise it's called box breathing. You breathe in for seven seconds through the nose, slowly, steady air. 
hold your breath for seven seconds, and I'll explain that in a minute. And you release the air through the mouth for seven seconds <clears throat> as if there were a handkerchief in front of you and you're blowing a pocket in it. Super steady air. Then you rest for seven seconds and then you repeat the same thing again. So you're looking at uh, about 49 seconds. So it doesn't take that long to do. It's pretty practical. And that um, starts to calm down the limbic system and, and clear out the, the junk that, that's going on in the brain, the shoulds and oughts. I should be doing this. I ought to have this nailed. I, I'm afraid I'm going to mess up. It starts to slow down all those thoughts. When that happens, it the limbic system gets the signal that to relax and doesn't trigger, does not trigger the adrenal glands that sit right on top of the kidneys. It doesn't it trigger those glands and make more adrenaline, more norepinephrine, more stuff that makes us, uh, you know, nervous. It, it, it starts to calm it down. Yeah, that. That is that, that's like one of my favorite exercises, you know, and you know what what I find kind of funny, though, is that for for people who are who rely on mastery of their breath as trumpet players, that we most of us have very limited uh, understanding of how the breath affects the mechanism of the brain and the body. So, uh, you know, we, we should actually be positioned in many ways to have the most Zen kind of lifestyle because of the way we breathe or should be breathing in terms of technique. But, uh, I think that box breathing is one of those techniques that, uh, is, you know, it, it's multi, it's like a, um, a Swiss army knife, if you will, yeah. for a trumpet player, because I mean, it, it does help to calm us down. And, and to focus us, uh, but then also that uh, that practice of you know the the way the breath works uh, to also strengthen our breathing mechanism, the physical breathing mechanism, and uh, you know which is going to help us to become better players as well. So you know it's like a win win. Yeah, it is, and it, it it conditions the it's operant conditioning the other way teaches us how to be how to relax when we play. So let's say you're playing trumpet, right? And let me see if I can get this. And your air isn't steady. How do you know if your air is steady? You buzz the mouthpiece first. The trumpet is just the amplifier, as you know. And if your air is all over the place, you, you make it, you keep buzzing until it becomes steady. So I haven't played in an hour. So you can hear a great deal of unsteadiness. Uh, uh, uh. So I'm going to try this again, but I'm going to play as soft as I can, try to close up that aperture. Okay, and you can see there's about a 50% improvement where the air is much more steady. So every time before I play, I have to make sure my air is steady, my shoulders are down, I'm relaxed. And when I say close aperture, I don't mean... Um, make it as small as you can. I just make it efficient is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's it's going to be different for everybody, but I'm trying to get all the particles I, of lip I can to vibrate in sync. Um, and you can establish that by, you know, getting the steady air first with, with just a mouthpiece. Then, you know, when you put the amplifier up, it's already, it's already steady. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, the best solutions are generally the simplest. Yeah. We talk like elegant solutions, you know, it, you know, we want to make things so daggone complicated, 
but uh, there's there is a, there is a level of complication. Obviously, if you break down any process that goes on in the body, you know the amount of of uh, neurons that have to fire, the amount of muscles that have to either engage or or relax. Uh, all these things that to make a simple action, it's so complicated. But really, then it becomes as simple as you just have to have clarity of thought and clarity of purpose. And when you do that and kind of get out of the way, then then it works. So, you know that that idea of turning the intention into the breath and the breath then is going to uh, create the vibration and the vibration is going to be amplified by the, you know, by the trumpet and voila, there we have it. But unfortunately something goes amiss between the thought and the action. So like from your perspective, uh, both, uh, you know, um, from both sides of, of the horn, if you will, you know, from the, uh, from the, the physical, uh, mechanical, musical portion, and then also understanding the, the clinical side of things. Um, where, do, where do we typically see a breakdown? I mean, where, where do we go astray most commonly? It um, would be patience, meaning when, and this is also basic, and it's so basic it gets overlooked. Let's say you get a... Uh, Arbin book, and this is one example. The, the book is written in such a way where you start in the top left corner, you play down to the bottom right part of the page, and it implies that you play. If you have any, in order to build endurance, you have to play the whole page through, and then if you can play it all the way to the end, and if you, you built endurance, so when you do that, you notice you get tired, and the air starts getting unsteady. So what are you really practicing? You're practicing how to get better at being tired, and how and better at having unsteady air. Uh, you're reinforcing those. And um, so what I learned is playing, practicing something in a smaller increments. Uh, so it would be played a first, first established steady air with the, uh, with buzzing the mouthpiece and, or breathing and getting the shoulders relaxed. Bah. And then playing the first line, you rest as long as you play. Then you, and you buzz the mouthpiece again, get steady air, play the next line and rest as, as long as you play. And you're focusing on steady air above all else. So you're focusing on the, you know, the, the, the Zen type air, if you will. And uh, once it starts in being aware of when it starts uh, tensing up, then you know you have to relax the shoulders and keep them down. The other part is being aware of the thoughts that you have. So they, the breakdown that I see mostly, and this is players in symphony, jazz bands, lead trumpet players uh, and even on dis different instruments is you're focused on getting the sound out and playing it perfectly and not on the process of playing uh, so the process of playing would entail doing the maintenance the basic thing you have to be relaxed before you play tiger woods when he plays golf is going to be in his most relaxed state it's in order to play the best he can play uh, he's not going to go out there and be as tense as he can. A boxer that's boxing, if he tenses his muscles up the entire time he's boxing, he's going to get fatigued from isometric pressure. So he won't be able to have any endurance. Same thing on trumpet uh, and, and French horn and, and somewhat on trombone. So I'm seeing a lot of players that uh, come in and they, their face is rubbery or it hurts. Or they, uh, I, I was just talking to a fellow that uh, you, uh, I had him, feel the pressure points in his in his uh, cheek bone and uh he went oh my god it hurts so there there he'd been playing 
in such a way where he fatigued his face by playing for a long period of time uh, loudly and uh, and it caused some fatigue in his face. So he had to figure that out, you know, get the lactic acid out of the tissue there and then, and then practice uh, softly to kind of retrain the brain that you, you don't need to play that loud. Yeah, that, you know, the concept of, of embouchure fatigue, that's become a real uh, prevalent thing that I've, I've seen a lot on uh, different uh, social media platforms, you know, different, some of the different trumpet groups that are out there. Uh, and you're seeing a lot of people ask about that. And I don't know whether it's just, uh, you know, it's something that, that is becoming more prevalent or it's just that people are becoming more open about talking about it. But uh yeah it just seems like a lot of people are are dealing with that and uh, like you said you know there's the 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 too much pressure there's the overblowing you know trying to play too loud too high too too much you know all these different things and, and a lot of those things do come back to that idea that you talk about of patience um so you know if you're if you're dealing with with uh fatigue i know that you know that macho side of us as as trumpet players and especially if you're a lead trumpet player you know it's to, it's to muscle through and to you know to man up and and suck it up and and just you know keep pushing through but it, that's kind of what we really need to do is somewhat counterintuitive because we actually do need to lean back a little bit more we need to relax a little bit more so What's one of the ways that that uh, that you've personally processed that you know when when you feel like you're getting a little too intense? Uh, how do you manage to to get yourself back into the more relaxed and balanced state of playing? That's a great question. So every every set I would do at Disney uh, was loud, fast, high, right? So I tense up every set. Uh, now you'd think that I have this knowledge of how not to play tense you think i wouldn't tense up nope it's gonna go right back to the same thing i always did and i'll get the same result i always got so i had to change that pattern in that loop and i still do so before i play it's the natural tendency to play trumpet especially lead trumpet is to uh is to you know muscle through and, and play loud and and uh and get the sound out right uh so before I would play a set, I'd play a, um, this is something I, I learned at a, uh, from Wynton Marsalis when he was giving a trumpet clinic and I was in the audience, like with a bunch of other people just listening. Um, so he would play a low C as soft as he could and hold it out and, um, and, and just focus on steady air, rest, then do a B, as soft as he could, hold it out, B flat, and then A, A flat, G, and then as low as the trumpet can naturally go on, on a F sharp or G flat. And he would hold, I would hold each note out uh, as long as I could. And then I'd go do the set. And it would teach my brain that you, I need to uh, focus on the relaxed feeling when I play the set rather than, uh, you know, getting ready to tense up. I know that the natural state is to tense up. So I have to show the brain and the body that and I know your natural state is to tense up, but I want you to do it this way instead. And it, it would, it worked, you know, it, it kicked in there. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool one. I have to try that. Um, I mean, I, I know for myself, well, one of the things that I, I found is that uh, like if I'm, if I'm practicing at home and I'm, you know, doing my warm up and I do my maintenance and I do this and, and do that, you know, do technical studies. Um, then if I go to start playing some charts, you know, and practice some music for an upcoming gig, a lot of times I feel myself tense up and, uh, you know, things start to choke off 
And uh, if I put the horn down for one, walk away. But I found that if I just sat down and I, I put on some some uh, play along tracks, like some Abersol tracks, and just played jazz for you know two or three tunes, just just blowing courses and just not really worried about what I'm doing, just just playing and and kind of getting my mind more into that relaxed state. Then when I go back to do the hard practice, it's like everything is just locked in. It, it's just you know the aperture is is open enough that I get a good sound, but it's controlled enough that I that I have access to my upper register. And it's like the stuff that I couldn't play 20 minutes ago, suddenly is just coming out without any effort. So, um, you know, the, kind of that resetting of, of the mechanism seems to be like, uh, you know, one of those tools that I think that, that every great player has, some of them don't know what they're doing, but they have these little, little things that they do that kind of get them reset so that they can function at a high level. So, um, you know, I really appreciate you, you expressing some of these ideas. Um, so like, you know, from your experience, you know, both uh, again, as a, as a professional uh, player and as a, as a clinical practice uh, practitioner, um, you know, what, if, if there was like a canon of uh, Martin Zaus's uh, uh, most important points for making your physical, mental uh, concept of playing work the best. What would some of the the top tips be? Well, first that that explanation you just gave you was perfect. It was absolutely wonderful. That's exactly right on. So, if you're watching this, please read rewind to listen to that again that was right on the money uh so the tips uh if i could put them in, in a shorter summary a practical summary would be to the first step is the awareness uh, now when when you're practicing your face is going to get fatigued and you do grow and gain endurance by playing something for a long period of time and, and getting through it uh, what i'm what i'm saying is you you want to do that. You can do that. It's okay to get fatigued. It's just to, to not have a bad habit while you're doing it. It's to be relaxed and focused while you're doing it. If you feel some fatigue there, well, that's okay. If it's fatigue here and it's, you can feel your teeth, well, then it's time to, it's time to rest. So when you're, when you're playing, there's going to be a, a buildup of lactic acid that takes place in the, in the face. It's important to get that out of there as fast as you can when you're done practicing. It naturally dissipates as, as soon as we get done playing, but you know, it's okay to, you know, do that or whatever you need to do to get it out there. Kind of feel around here, make sure there's no pressure points. Uh, that's the one thing to, to watch that. And it, the, the, the main thing that I, I got off there a little bit, that the main thing is to stay, is to set yourself up before you play uh, you want to show your brain and your body how to play relaxed before you play each time so it knows what to do. It's kind of like waking up every day saying, uh, well, this is what I got to do today. You have a plan. So it's it's showing the body how to do it, whether it's the breathing exercises, the lawn tones. Uh, I'm a big fan of James Stamp. I've done that uh, since 1983. And uh, that's really what helps me. And I, I don't do the lip buzzing. I just do the mouthpiece buzzing and I rest as long as I play and I focus on steady air. And uh, uh, if it's not steady, I make sure I get it as steady as I can before I continue on. So that, that's the probably the most important thing I could share, I, I, I think. Yeah. 
Well, you know, with, with breathing, breathing seems to be one of those things that, uh, you know, you, you ask 10 trumpet players to explain uh, how the breath mechanism works and playing, and you're going to probably get 15 different answers. Because, you know, some people are exceptionally creative with those answers. Um, but um, like when, when I was teaching uh, martial arts full time, um, one there, the understanding that the breath is the link between in, in Chinese concepts is like the, the breath is the link between your intention and your energy and your action. So those those have to work together. Um, and that's particularly the, the link between the, the your thought, the way you're thinking and the way you're breathing that you can you can tell if someone is nervous by their breath, you know, you, you can tell if they're relaxed, you can tell if they're, uh, you know, anything that's going on, it immediately creates a change in the breath on that subconscious level. And then when you understand that you can consciously change it, you know, I, I call that the breath hack, when you hack into the to the uh, SNS or the PNS, um, you know, that you can consciously direct that and affect affect your mental state, which therefore affects your physical state. Um, but when when you talk about breathing, uh, you know, sometimes uh, people, it's like the, well, you have to tank up. Well, what does it mean to tank up? Uh, or you have to, you know, breathe from your diaphragm or you breathe, you, know, you, you all these different kind of things. And I, for me, I've always felt like it's more important to think about the quality of your breath than the quantity of your breath. Um, so when, when you're breathing, uh, how do you think about your breath? Because the way you think about it is going to be, you know, obviously different than the way anybody else thinks about it, uh, since, you know, we're all individuals. But, you know, how do you think about your breath? Are you thinking in terms of volume? Are you thinking about the terms of the, the quality of your breath? Are you thinking rhythmically? Uh, you know, so how do, how do you think about the, the mechanism of breath? And then how do you apply that to your uh, inherent plane? Great question. And this is one, another one of those points where you need to uh, go back and listen to what he just said again. If you're watching this, that was perfect uh, about the relationship between the breath and the uh, that's you nailed it. So with the breath, it's like learning how to drive a stick shift. So when you first are driving a stick shift, you have the you have to draw a diagram of the gear one, two, you know, and you're grinding, you can't get the clutch right. It's all over the place. And uh, uh, with that, how that relates to my breath is I was I learned the complete yoga breath from Bobby Shu from I never took lessons from him, but from his illustration that he uh, wrote out and then somebody showing me uh, what that was, it took a lesson from him. I don't even recall. I think it was Mark Wood um, uh, that showed me that um, he's a trumpet player in the um, Army Blues. He's phenomenal. He's a super nice guy, too. Um, so uh, in the first way I did it when I was learning, it was very mechanical, unusable. So it was, and then you relax the shoulders and I have so much air in me right now that I can't do anything is what it felt like. Right. And that's not what Bobby Shue intended. I'm sure that's not the way he plays, but to get to, to understanding of how it worked, that's how I was breathing. So I tried to play like that for a while and I'll just close everything up. I couldn't play. So um, I think what he's more getting at in a practical way would be the way Pavarotti, Luciano Pavarotti or Frank Sinatra would breathe. Uh, they're both on stage and they don't look tense at all. Uh, so this goes back to Maggio, which is in play. That's it. You, you open your 
throw it up and you're playing. And that seems to take the tongue and put it back where it's supposed to be, wherever that is. I don't know for any, any person I can't see in there. And, and, uh, and for me to guess to where your tongue exactly it should be, would be like trying to tell you to slow down your liver function. There's no way to, you can't really consciously do that. You just know it's in the right spot. So it's to take a, and then play. And uh, I stopped doing that basic thing when I was doing a uh, orchestra gig at Disney and I, I was missing notes. I was like, what's wrong with me? So I drove all the way across town, took a lesson from like 45 minutes away from a, a trumpet player named John Almeida that uh, lives in uh, this area. He's a brilliant teacher. And uh, he said, oh yeah, you're not breathing right. Just and um, so I did that and everything went back into place and he, he says, okay, let's get some coffee. And that was the end of the lesson. That's all he <laughs> drove all the way across town for him to tell me that. And he was right, you know, so. So yeah. like I said, sometimes the, the best answer is the simplest one. So. <laughs> yeah. It's just, and then you focus on what you were saying earlier, steady air and being this trumpet starts to feel like an extension of yourself when you're, you're playing instead of a cold piece of metal. So. Yeah, you know, and the I, th I think that the relationship that we have with the instrument is, um, I mean, obviously, it, it it is very intimate, you know. Uh, but um, sometimes I think it becomes adversarial, and uh, it, it's not the fault of the trumpet. I mean, the trumpet's a trumpet, you know. <laughs> it, it's an inanimate object, uh, but it's that you know that uh, that mindset that we have when we pick it up, or you know, when when we have uh, specific kinds of playing situations that we're in that, uh, you know, we suddenly find ourselves, you know, freaking out. Um, so you know, I, I used to have a lot of problems with stage fright and I, I finally kind of, uh, kind of got it under control, but, um, you know, in talking with a lot of people about that, uh, I, I would say things like, you know, whether it was in music or martial arts or other, other aspects of life, I would say, you know, can you do this skill at home or in your practice room or in your shower or, you know, whatever? And then like, yeah, I can do that. Well, then what's the difference between doing it in your practice room, in your jammies and doing it on stage? And like, well, there are all these people I'm like, well, well, that really doesn't change anything. I mean, it changed your perception. It changed what you're focusing on. But if you have the ability to do this, and you know you can do this, then the only thing that's changed is that you've allowed your external circumstances, your external environment to then be in control of your facilities as opposed to you being in control of them. And it's like, oh, I never really thought about it that way. So, um, you know, and I think going, tying that back to the breath, I think then that breath and those kind of exercises that you were talking about, like doing the square breathing, those are those things that we could do on, on stage or, you know, it doesn't take that much time uh, to do that reset when we start to find our, our minds being drawn out of being focused on the task at hand uh, and being drawn into either the fear or the anxiety of, of you know, what's going to happen next, what's the audience going to think. Um, so I think that, that that's kind of a, a, a good jumping off point. But are there any other kind of things that, that you can think of that, you know, when you start to hit that that wall, that little performance anxiety, uh, some some triggers that you can maybe create for yourself to to recenter and rebalance. Yeah, you're you're right on what, what you're saying. Obviously, so 
So the, the trigger is identifying the trigger. So which would be, there's people around. That's, and it's just what you, it's reminding yourself that doesn't, I'm no different now than I was in the house, except for there's people around. So if we, there's a couple of ways to decrease the anxiety. One is the, the knowledge of why you're having this anxiety. So let's say you watch a terror movie. I think we talked about this in the other interview that we had. Let's say you're watching, I'm going to use the reference of Psycho, which gives away my age a little bit. So, you know, that everybody's seen it. So the shower scene, eek, eek. So how come we get sweaty, nervous, scared, uh, anxious when we're watching it on a, a, on a television or in a theater? Well, on a television nowadays, but uh it's because our brain can't tell if we're in the movie or we're watching it. So the amygdala, the fight or flight glands can't tell if it's uh, the difference between reality and perceived reality. So when we're, we're playing in front of an audience, uh, some part of our brain thinks we're in danger that something's going to happen. And so it literally, some part of our brain wonders if we're going to be attacked or not. So it feels threatened and it starts to react. And, uh, and, so that knowledge of that saying, oh, this is just my limbic system overreacting because it thinks I'm in danger. So that gives an explanation why it takes away some of the shame from yourself. Shame is a big one. I, if I was any good, I wouldn't be nervous. Well, yeah, everybody gets nervous. I've seen our turtle get nervous, you know. It didn't change the way he played, but <laughs> he's, nevertheless, uh, uh, he still played the hell out of it, but, he, you know, then he wasn't nervous. Uh so it changes your perception and then, then you follow that with you acknowledge it and then you, you know, the reason you're you're nervous so it's probably because there's people around you don't have to nail it or get it perfect and you take the breath and start to release that and it teaches the limbic system that you don't have to be nervous you know nervousness is not required to be able to do this task you're going to do so yeah well yeah from one of the things that, that helped me um was learning to reframe the sensations that I had. So I would get, you know, I would get nervous. So my heart rate would go up, uh, you know, uh, start to, to feel a yeah, change in the body temperature, tunnel vision a little bit, you know, all the classic signs of, of fear and anxiety. But it's when I, and I can't, I can't remember where I read it first. And it was talking about how the, the sensations of, fear and the in anxiety and the sensations of excitement and anticipation are fundamentally the same and yeah. it's like oh so if i think about it and go well how do i feel if i'm really excited and anticipating something like you know I, I, the example i use a lot of times is like oh, you're coming downstairs this christmas morning and you're a kid and you've got all these packages and, and you don't know what's in any of them and your heart's racing and you're all excited and you, know, you feel your you know your your breath has changed everything has changed and it's like well that's kind of the same feeling that you have when you're you know feeling like you're getting ready to go on stage now the difference is one you're framing positively and you're thinking about what you're going to possibly get and the other one you're framing it negatively and you're afraid of what you're going to potentially lose so it's like oh well if every time i have that feeling if i reframe that as you know this is excitement this is anticipation this is my body preparing me not to not like to 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 be in fear but it's preparing me to actually perform at my higher level so if the, if the limbic system excuse me if the limbic system is kicking in well this is just preparing me with with 
the adrenaline to be able to perform at a much higher level than if I was, you know, in my default mode network and just kind of kick back and, and chilling out. So it was that kind of reframing that allowed me to uh, take the situation and then go, okay, well, I'm in control of this now. And, uh, you know, to me, that's, that's been like a, a big, that's an eye opener for me. And one of the, I, I like to share with people as much as possible. Um, but, you know, like the reframing concept, uh, do you, do you have any kind of particular way that, that you help people to look at, like, let's say someone with the, the, uh, pre-anticipatory uh, anxiety, uh, how would you help somebody to reframe uh, their situation so that, that they're not falling into that trap? That example you just gave is phenomenal. That's a great way to look at it. That would be an excellent example of a reframe right there. That's a, this is my body preparing me to get to play. That's a great way to look at that. So I would use that one uh, that, if you don't mind me stealing that from you. And uh, that's brilliant. And uh, also the, it's the basic part of it is uh, the reframe is excellent, but it, it, the reframe could be acknowledge uh, process. It's, it's the reframe would be trust the process. This is a natural process. This anxiety is a natural process. It's not a uh, bad or evil one. This is a natural process that is instilled in human beings uh, because of our, the way we're brought up to survive, you know, to find food and, and to eat. And uh, it's just my limbic system working the way it's supposed to, to try to protect me from something it thinks is, is going to attack me. And uh, it's just preparing me to get ready. How can I take this energy and use it towards the performance? So if we're too excited uh, and we're too into it and, wow, this is great, uh, then it'll affect our reform performance and it'll diminish it some. So it's, the, it's not up here or down here, but it's in, in the middle, right? Uh, same in martial arts. If you're so excited, you're when you're in a, a match, you might uh, not. Now, my expertise isn't like isn't up to your standard or level in martial arts, but I, I would assume that it you might not function as well. You know, the next thing you know, you're looking at the ceiling. So <laughs> <laughs> you're looking at something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Floor. Yeah. So yeah. So it's. Yes, it's not letting you get too high or too low. It's just keeping it in the, in the middle. In, in what I love what you said about, I'm in control of this. You are. You're not powerless over anything. You are in control of that. So, yeah, I was uh, reading a book recently, and I can't remember which one it was, uh, and I can't remember the the baseball player that you're talking about. But um, it was it was a story about um, you know a, a really high level professional baseball player. Uh, played for the Dodgers, had some, you know, had a phenomenal season, uh, but he, he, you know, he, he hit a slump and he couldn't get out of it. And the process that he used to get out of it and like have this amazing, like record setting game. And I think it was in the world series in the playoffs um, was he, he said that he just realized he had to just go back to the methods and, and not think about, not think about the result of, you know, I've got to get a home run or I've got to do this or got to do that. It's just go through the process, you know? So it, you know, he's trained that process of how his stance is, you know, how he swings, the mechanics of his swing. 
And he said that, you know, once he kind of got his mind out of, I've got to perform to, I just need to go through the process, then that's when the performance actually enhanced. So it's like the kind of, you know, stop trying to do it and, you know, be Yoda, you know, just, just do. But uh, I think it's setting up, that's the key of like any great, uh, any person who's great at anything, particularly in a physical endeavor, they have a process that they go through. They have uh, some sort of methodology. Um, and some of it may be ritual, some of it may be, you know, superstition. Uh, but in a way, I think they all serve the purpose of getting you into the right mindset and the, creating the, the proper framework for you to be able to perform consistently at a high level. So, um, you know, if someone will come to you and say, you know, hey, Mark, I just I, I'm I have all these tools, you know, I, I can do this, I can do this, but I can't seem to do it consistently. Um, do you have any suggestions on, on how to create a framework to to create a process that will help to develop a level of consistency and comfort uh, so that, that you can perform at a higher level. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Absolutely. So it, it, what you described was familiarity too. the brain likes this, what we first, you know, we first started out talking uh, about with the COVID thing, the brain loves familiarity, it loves something it can recognize and hold on to it loves the same thing each day, it loves to know what to expect. And that reduces anxiety it tells every tells the part of the brain that you're going to get food today, you're not going to starve to death today, basically is what it's saying. Um, so if you warm up the same way every day and you warm up in the, in the same way, or, uh, or I just said that warm up with the same thing each day in the same way, uh, which reminds the brain about the basics because we as a brass player playing lead trumpet, it's easy to forget about the basics because if we, it's so easy just to turn into muscle the note out or will it out or whatever that, um, it's easy to get into a, a strenuous habit, right? So if you focus on, I'm going to remind my brain how to relax before I play, I'm going to teach it how to be calm before I play, and then I'm then I'm ready, you know, and the mindfulness when you're warming up and you're buzzing a low C or whatever it is you do for a warm up that's familiar to you that relaxes you, uh, you'll you some days your brain's going to be racing about all these other thoughts and stuff you got to do. And uh, you're not in the here and now, you're in the there and then and not focus on what, what where you're at. So it's to clear that noise out and just be there with just the playing of the instrument. Whatever else is going on, if if you're doing a gig, it can wait, you know, most of the time, unless it's something critical. It can wait until after you're done. And uh, and then you then, then you set yourself up to be, you teach your brain and body how to how to be relaxed. You set yourself up to for more consistent performance. That's, that's good. I mean, uh, I've, I've heard so much uh, about like for warmups, uh, so many different concepts uh, about the, the mechanics of, of the warmup, 
Uh, you know, some people that say, well, you know, you, you want to have a, a longer, more gentle warm up. Some people are like, you know, just jump in it. Some people are, you know, just do a couple breaths and you know, if you're breathing, then you're warmed up. Um, so, you know, everybody's kind of got these different things and, and, and the people, whatever they're, whatever one they are preaching for lack of a better word, um, tends to work for them. Uh, so, but I think like I, the, the key for me, from what you said there is just the level of consistency, the familiarity. So whether it's a, a, a two minute warm up or a two hour warm up, if it's consistent, then we have that familiarity. And so our, our brains are more relaxed and more comfortable with the process. And that's going to allow us to perform at a higher level. So I, I definitely like that one. That's, that's, that's golden stuff. Uh, but if we talked about the mechanical side of things uh, for yourself, um, are you a more of a, a low, soft and slow warmer upper uh, medium volume? Uh, or are you just dive right into the, to the, uh, the tough stuff? I do the um, the buzzing, getting the note uh, with steady air first with a with a mouthpiece, and then the stamp buzzing, you know, da, and I'm listening for the air to be steady, and I do the the next part of the stamp, and it's absolutely no feeling whatsoever in it. Uh, I'm just doing this solely for the uh, to get the. Uh, I'm not trying to connect with the instrument or so much or anything. I'm just trying to solely get the air to total cognitive behavioral, trying to get the air to to uh, show it how to be steady. So that when I play, everything stays like that, you know, and it never does. And I have to redo it again, you know, have to do those long tones we talked about earlier before we play. So it's um, <clears throat> after doing it for since 83, it's become quite mechanical. It's just a, uh, familiar thing. It, it becomes so mechanical sometimes that I, I forget to relax. I'm just getting through it. But I, so I have to still be mindful of, you know, having it, I'm focusing on what I'm, I'm doing. Uh, but I, um, I sometimes it, uh, I grew to the point where I didn't think I could play without doing that stamp routine until I had to do it. And uh, I could, it, it worked fine. It just was, I was tense and kind of tight for a few tunes and then it, and it felt like it did before. So you're not you're not stuck on anything. It's just it, it goes better when you. Um, it seems to go better for me when I do this this warm up. That's the same, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be stamp. It can be anything that you, this, like you just said. There's some guys that don't ever play pedal tones at all, and they sound phenomenal. They can read anything. Their range is huge. Sound it. They do a different warm up. So whatever they're doing, they need to keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's a whole lot of truth to that. Um, so let, let me ask you this, I, because um, you know I, I've talked to some people that that have known you from the early early years, uh, like the high school years and things like that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was like, yeah, I remember listening to the Mark playing in the marching band and he was a monster back then um but you know even for for people who you know had a particular skill set when they were when they were younger uh like i, I recently had peter bond on the show and, and peter was talking about you know being the the high note jockey you know with, playing with phantom regiment you know back in in his earlier years and and kind of making this transition into the the orchestral playing um and, and a lot of the things he was able to do when he was younger was just kind of, uh, I guess, uh, young, dumb luck, 
uh, you know, sort of thing. And you, 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 you could do it, but you didn't quite know how or why. And so you ran into some limitations because of, uh, you know, it wasn't actually a learned process. It was just, you know, something you kind of stumbled into. And then eventually, you know, when you have problems, you have to figure out what, how the hell to make it work consistently. Um, so, you know, even though you, you had those, those crazy high chops at a younger age, um, when were you able to kind of put everything together to a point where you felt like uh, you you were truly in command, uh, you know, consciously? You you knew what you were doing. You knew how you how you needed to approach things, and then that also then leads into being able to share that wisdom with other people. So, kind of like when did it come together, and, and what maybe catalyzed or crystallized your your approach to playing? Well. You're, that's a great question. You're right. Uh, the first few years, I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I could kind of get these notes out and I was doing them with horrible form and they came out and they, you know, most of the time they came out, but, and it I had a limits, you know, uh, there was some natural range, but I, I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, a couple of things happened. And, uh, I had a good, my teacher was Cy Pryweller. He's in the South Florida. And he showed me uh, the stamp in Crusoe. And I did that for a summer. I did exactly what he said. I didn't do it correctly because I was a stupid kid and didn't listen to him as much as I should have. You know, he said, rest as long as you play. And I didn't do that on the stamp thing. So it didn't go as well as it could have. Um, had I listened to him, I would have got farther along. But uh, but anyway, that increased the power in the range. That helped. And then uh, in 85, I got a hernia from playing I was leaning forward when I played instead of breathing correctly and leaning back. So I did not tell me to do that. I just, I was away from him. I went to college and did that and uh, tore the tissue, uh, tissue in my ribs after the hernia healed and I couldn't play for a while. So I had to figure some stuff out if I was going to go back to playing again. So I, I actually worked at UPS for a while and uh, delivered packages because I didn't know how long this was going to take to heal. Did a lot of weightlifting, healed that up. Then um, learned that power and strength is not just like in martial arts. You can, it helps, but it's, it isn't going to, somebody with more skill, half your size is going to take you out. You know, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with form and, and your uh, understanding of the form and your, your skill that you developed, right? Um, so uh, right around the time I was in later part of Future Core, I was working at a Dixieland club and I had let my credit card get up to, uh, back then it was like uh, $18,000, $20,000, right? That was a lot of money back then. So I'm looking at it and going, what, what am I doing? So I worked at um, uh, Future Core during the day and then this Dixieland club at night called Rosie O'Grady's. And the, it, Rosie's was much harder than Future Core. It was a, a beating and I, you get home, you felt like hamburger. So in order to pay off this debt, which I did, you know, pretty quickly too, it, it, um, I had to work from like 8.30 in the morning, start warming up at 7.30 and then play till about midnight for a while. And, uh, and if I didn't, somebody else would and I wouldn't get to check, basically, is it. They don't care. I just need somebody to play the part. You know, if I didn't do it, that's you're out, you know. So I did those. I had to figure out the the method. I began to figure out the method of relaxing. And that's when I started doing those long tones 
in between each set uh, at Future Core. And again, it, uh, after that shift ended, I went out to Rosie's and played uh, the Dixieland show. It was about, th uh, I think it was four one hour shows or 50 minute shows or something like that. I can't really remember. And uh, that's when I had to figure it out, you know, because you, you had had to figure it out or I, would, I wouldn't be able to play or I, I'd lose my ability to play because I would get embouchure fatigue syndrome. I didn't know what it was back then, but I knew I'd get tired and stiff and wouldn't be able to play. So, yeah, it's pretty well, it, that's, that's brutal. And Dixieland gigs are brutal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because you, you just you're just constantly playing. You know, there's just there, there is no break. So the uh, circus, the two guys on either side of me were like phenomenal. I was just getting my butt kicked. I loved it. So. Yeah, well, that, that's a good situation to be in, you know, uh, as long as as long as you survive it. So, uh, but you were um, like when, when you were saying about, uh, you know, figuring, figuring it out. I mean, I, I think a lot of times uh, you know, it's one of the things I, I, I talk to people about is the, the you know, change is inevitable. It was Heraclitus who said uh, the only constant in life is change. Um, but we can either change by default or change by design. So you change by default when you don't have any choice but to change you know you're 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 failing at the gig so you got to figure out how to be how to be successful at the gig um whereas change by design is the, the proactive change so change by default is reactive change by design is is proactive um and i i think that a lot of times uh you know we kind of especially younger players and i don't necessarily mean uh chronological age but level of maturity um so I'll say, you know, more mature players have figured out that you you're you have to be on somewhat of a constant search for better, more efficient ways to do whatever it is that you're doing, uh, because you know youth and stupidity will only take you so far, um, and you you become more proactive in your change because you're you're anticipating uh, future needs as opposed to just reacting to the the current environment. Um, so in terms of of like um, your continuing search for new knowledge and new skills and new methods. Um, you know, what are some of the sources that that you look to uh, to help to make Mark Zaus a better player and uh, a better teacher? Well, it's it's that's a great. I know I keep saying that you really are asking some great questions. And I learn a lot from the students and from the people that I give therapy to. So I had a teacher in where I went to college said, go to school on your clients or your patients. And, uh, and so they're saying things to me like, you know, my, I'm doing the Crusoe range builder, the seconds only uh, every other day and my range went up. Okay. Oh, that's good. That's great. And another guy says it. And the third person says it. And I'm going, okay, I need to try this. And they're right. You know, and I, and I don't know why, and I don't understand. Maybe it's just this small sample size that is better than that. But I get data from it, so it's another thing to try. There's a lot of experimenting going on because there's no empirical testing done with 3,000 people or whatever, and a double-blind study or any, or even a correlational that much. You know, so uh, you get it. You get ideas from people, and you test them. They're like hypothesis uh, ideas, and you test them to see if they're irrelevant so you can present that to somebody here's something to try because this is always just a practice right to see if it'll work you know in every in every person everything doesn't work it works on 
uh, a certain population of it. So that that's what I learned. There's no dichotomous or good or bad way to to do something. There's just different ways. Um, so it's taking everything in and and experimenting with it and seeing what really works the best. That's a great, great approach. Well, um, we uh, since we last talked, uh, I've added a few uh, segments to the show, and uh, I want to uh, have you join on these new segments because I think there's, your answer is going to be really, really enlightening if all things that you, uh, you tend to do are. Um, but uh, the first segment is brought to us by uh, my good friend Michael Barkley at Barkley Microphones, and it's called Sound Off. And uh, Sound Off, uh, I want to talk with you briefly about your approach to uh, developing that beautiful trumpet sound. Uh, so what, what are some of the, the things that uh, you look to and you suggest to people if they want to improve the quality of their sound? You, you practice softly. Um, so you buzz in the mouthpiece, get the air steady softly, and you practice softly. And it takes the aperture, puts it where it's supposed to be. So the most particle of, uh, that you can possibly have to vibrate inside the cup is vibrating. So you, you have efficiency and it, it makes the sound nicer. But if that air isn't steady first, then it, the sound never really gets to where it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. it, that's a real uh, kind of physical answer more so and the other the non-physical is to listen to somebody you want to sound like and your brain will figure out how to sound like them so uh, well i guess i should stop listening to my cat screaming because that's what <laughs> i think <laughs> all right uh, our next segment is brought to us by uh venture mouthpieces venture where technology design and craftsmanship intercept intersect and this is called geared up uh and uh if you use the code trumpet gurus 21 on your next order from Venture, you will get 10% off. So Geared Up is about gear. Uh, and uh, But particularly uh, your concepts surrounding gear. So, um, you know, why why you, you play what you play and what people, you know, the suggestions that you would have for people if they're looking to kind of up their gear game, what are the, the concepts that they should have uh, other than, you know, the fact that this is what Mark Zaus plays and it make you sound exactly like him because that's the horn I want to buy. Well, great. So every, and like the other thing we're t we talked about, uh, kind of touched on the, everybody needs something different, you know? So when I went to uh, Terry Warburton, I got this Warburton mouthpiece and I said to him, I've known him since I was, since 83, I've known him forever, right? 82, I think it was. And so I, I have a pretty good rapport with him. And I just said, this is what I want. Uh, I just want something a little bit. He goes, I got it. And then he ran off. And I, I was afraid to say anything to him because I might screw up his idea. And he came back and it's, he nailed it. It was perfect for me, right? That means it's perfect for me for the shape of my teeth, how they overlap in the little tiny area that I have here. Uh, so if I give that to Arturo, it'd be horrible for him. He needs his face is big. He needs he's a big guy. He needs a big mouthpiece, you know. He and uh that works for him. Uh so you get somebody with the understanding of what like the mouthpiece company you just mentioned, they'll figure it out. You know, you 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 tell them what you want and they'll they'll help you. Well, I think this would be good for you. And again, you experiment and find out, but they're just gonna make the experimenting cut the time down to less. Uh, the bore size of the trumpet I use, I need something really open 
And so I have a 4684. It's a Shilke X4, and it has a brilliant bell. And uh, it, it's um, it, it makes a lot of noise. It's a loud instrument, and that's good for what I do. But if I'm in a section with a bunch of guys, like uh, when I played with the um, Jacksonville Symphony a couple of years ago, they made those trumpet players in there had some of the most beautiful sounds I ever heard in my life. It was incredible. I just, I could have listened to them all day. It was beautiful. And so I really had to work hard to blend with them. We had larger equipment and, and different equipment. So I, if I were to play with them on a full-time thing, then I would have to switch around what I do. Probably Brilliant Bell wouldn't, wouldn't be a good idea. So they don't need a saw in their <laughs> section, you know. So you, it depends what you're doing too, so. Yeah, well, I yeah, I hear you on that because I mean, I, I my trumpet is made by Terry, and uh, it's a, a titanium bell, and yeah, it it's perfect for what I do, which is you know higher, faster, louder, uh, playing yeah. you know, playing in uh, gig bands, you know, but uh, it, it would certainly not cut it in a uh, chamber orchestra. <laughs> yeah. Because you do, uh, you know, you are called on uh, to do different kind of gigs from time to time. Um, do, you, do you switch equipment at all? Um, you know, I know you said you would if you were playing with the, with the symphony more, but I mean, like on, in general, I mean, do you have like a, like a two mouthpiece setup or a, you know, a second horn that you would use if you needed to? No, I don't. I use one mouthpiece and one trumpet. But if I were doing something, I mean, I'm only doing one thing. I'm doing playing with my own band, and I'm playing only the style that I do. And so that's all I need it for. But if I was playing something else, like in an orchestra, I would ab absolutely have two mouthpieces or three, and then uh, a couple different trumpets. You know, I would have more equipment. So. Yeah. When you were playing, like when you were doing the the uh, future core and the and the uh, Dixie band, were you playing the same gear on on both of those sets? Well, the f future core, I had to use this bugle that they made for us, and it got it was the, the Deg bugles. They were good, you know. It was a strange looking thing. They did the best they could, and then still a good instrument. And then this guy Lawler made a custom horn, and and. Uh, uh, you could get air through it. It just was funky because it's a bugle. There's no way you can make the thing function correctly. It's it's what it is, you know. Uh, but I use the trumpet at night, you know. But uh, it 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 messes with your pitch a little bit. Uh, the bugle that I had messed with my pitch. My G's and A's just above the staff are incredibly sharp all the time. They still are. I'm still fighting that. So. Well, well the, the price we pay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, the final segment we have uh, is uh, brought to us by Robinson Germany, which is the Robinson Germany Rapid Fire Round. Um, and I think that we did this one uh, with you originally. So I came up with a whole new set. These are these are fresh off the press questions for you, my friend. Uh, so this is a series of... Uh, questions all over the board, uh, different aspects of life, music, and uh, we're going to see how Mr. Mark Zaus does with uh, this new updated version of the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Round. Are you ready, Mark? I'm ready. All right, here we go. First question. What is the one thing that you've always wanted to do but haven't? Oh, boy. Probably play with Maynard Ferguson, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you could master any instrument besides the trumpet, what would it be? Probably a piano. Okay. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you want to live? 
Oh boy, I don't even know. A good question. I, I, I don't. I Tennessee, I guess. Uh, part of Tennessee. Okay. All right, that's, that's, that's all right. I lived in Tennessee for a while. I, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to not be there anymore. Yeah, that, see, um, I don't know because I never lived there. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite dessert? Uh, it's Boston cream pie. Or, so that's a, that's a winner. Yeah. Um, what is the one question that you wish you never had to answer again? What is jazz? <laughs> That's easy. Okay. God. All right. What's the one question that you would love to answer, but nobody ever asked you? Um, how, what level of importance does the trumpet have in my life? Basically, you know. All right. So what's the answer to that question? Not much. Not very important. You know, used to be, but to move on and it's not so important anymore so. all right uh if there was one thing that you could change about the world of music what would it be um it used to be closer to this back in the day that there'd be more awareness about the different styles of music of jazz Winton is trying to do this with everything he's got, you know, and so is the Lincoln Center Orchestra. They're trying to spread the word out. And so, and, and so were a lot of people to, to, uh, to do that. I, there's, there's a, I can think of a bunch of people that are trying to do that, that I can't remember their names right now, but I would try to spread the awareness of these wonderful styles that are out there that uh, people don't know about, you know. All right, cool. All right, and if there's one thing you could change about the world as a whole, what would it be? Well, that we're all related to one another. We're uh, there's we're we're about ninety nine point nine nine percent the same. So we're all brothers and sisters, and it's to realize that. So when you're trying to screw someone over, it's it's just doing it to yourself. It's it's it makes no sense. We're all in the same boat. We need to help each other. So very true. All right, what is your superpower? Oh, I, I don't think I have one. <laughs> but, we all so. have we all have our own unique, our own unique thing that makes us special. I I had some insight. I guess I could use that. Mm -hmm. I've in, insight into things that can figure some things out. Mm -hmm. So, what's your kryptonite? Ah, uh, it would be lack of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> there was no coffee in the world. I did that be it. <laughs> Superpowers are gone. All right. Uh, would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, introvert. Okay. Uh, who's your favorite vocalist? Um, my wife, probably. Uh, my wife. Good so. answer. Safe answer. Yeah. No, no she's, she's. She is a great vocalist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what is your vision of the perfect gig? Uh, it would be 30 minutes long and it would be playing only uh, and I could hear everything. In other words, I could hear myself play. You know how you can't, you're in some room, you can't hear anything. And uh, it would be playing songs that I can play well, all the songs that I play well. So I don't, and then, then, then the gig would end and I'd leave. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and pick up that million dollar check on the way Yeah, out. that's right. <laughs> all right. And... 
what is your vision of the perfect life? Well, if I were uh, wealthy, but not so I could keep the money and buy a boat or something that I don't need, it would be so I could help somebody else with it. And I think I would give me such joy that I, I w- wouldn't be able to stand it. If I could do something for somebody else, I could make a difference in their life, you know, with that money. And, and you don't have to have it. You can't take it with you when you die, but it sure comes in handy here. And if you can help somebody with it, it's a, it's a great thing. So oh, that's awesome. Well, you have certainly helped me, and I'm sure that everyone who's tuned into this, uh, you've, you've helped them. There's some tremendous, tremendous truth bombs and nuggets of wisdom uh, in this episode. So I, I will steal your line and say, go back, rewind this, listen to it again and again and again, because uh, there, there's just some great stuff in here that, that will help you. Uh, and not only in your playing, you know, the, because these are all universal principles. So um yeah i really appreciate you taking the time mark uh you're you're a tremendous player and uh you know just such a great guy and so knowledgeable on so many things and just so willing and ready to help um and uh, i highly recommend if you have questions uh about your playing some things particularly if you're dealing with uh issues like your armor's fatigue uh you're having some fear and uh, stage fright anxieties things like that check mark out because he uh, does some great lessons uh virtually uh can help you through those problems so uh, links for his website are in the show notes so just make sure you check it out and uh stay in touch with this man he's he's got a lot to share so thank you for spending time with us today on the trumpet gurus hang as always make sure that you like subscribe share uh send us checks money orders credit card numbers we'll take all of those things you can venmo venmo us i think we're, we're all set up for that too so uh we do appreciate you and uh want to bring more of these kind of shows where we can really dive deep into uh some of these higher level concepts of playing you know things uh more than just you know how to play double high c's and and uh you know that that sort of stuff that that uh, is typically the kind of questions that people ask of of great players but you know we want to get into the real nitty-gritty here so uh, if you have any uh, suggestions for questions or future guests please make sure you hit me up at the trumpet gurus at gmail.com and uh so until next time folks remember it's peace and slide grease and we're out thanks for hanging with us today This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. 